0: well i 'm about i 'm at the age of my life where i 'm about to enter the complete dork zone if you 're too old to know what a dork is it won 't matter to you anyway because you 're already there. <laughs> I had an eye exam a couple of weeks ago uh, i 've worn glasses since I was in second grade. I probably needed them when I was in first grade or kindergarten and and so uh, for many years, I, I had to get stronger and stronger glasses, and finally that stabilized. Otherwise, I'd have to hold my glasses like this while I talk to you. But went to the eye doctor, and he said, "Well, it's pretty close, you know. Uh, make us a little change here." And and then we were talking about the bifocal, which I have, of course, and have had for many years. And I said, "Well, you know." we were discussing what looks best, and so on. And he goes. Hey, i tell you what you do. Now, this is a fellow who understands me because he's older than me and he's been there and he wears glasses. He's an ophthalmologist who wears glasses and he's older than me, so he understands the whole vision thing. He says, i tell you what you do. You go to the dollar store and you get you a one-power set of readers. Just a one-power. And he said, get the biggest ones you can find. And when you're doing close work, you just put those on right over top of your glasses. And you'll be able to see. See, I can see this close. I can focus this close with these glasses on. It's amazing. It's wonderful. See what I said? I've entered the complete dork zone. But, but I will do that because that's what it takes to have clear vision. And clear vision is, is so important. Uh, my lack of vision last night enabled me to... Uh, completely strip out the hole on a brake caliper. So I'll get to get a new brake caliper tomorrow, get my wife's brakes fixed. I couldn't see, I couldn't get back in there. I get up there close to something and it just goes out of focus. My vision needs to be better. And I want to conclude our series on spiritual gifts today by challenging you in your vision. In your vision of what you are in the Lord and of who the Lord needs to be to you. And as we look at Romans 12, we're going to see the lens that Paul wants us to use so that our vision will become clear. Look at Romans 12, please, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. If you've never memorized Romans 12, 1 and 2, that would be a great project for you this week because those are key, key verses as we think about our life in the Lord. And right off the bat, at the beginning of verse 1, Paul says, I want to talk to you about the mercies of the Lord. And that's what I want to talk about today is the mercies of the Lord. I want to ask the question, what are the mercies of God? What are the mercies of God in your life? According to what God caused Paul to write, the mercies of God are the entire basis of the dedicated, righteous, serving life. We've talked about having a spiritual gift, how that when you accept Christ as your Savior, God gives you a supernatural ability to serve him. And we've talked about how how we might be able to try and find that gift as we serve around the church and and try to see what God has empowered us to do. And we've talked about the humility necessary through servanthood. But here is the thing that's got to come, got to happen if we're going to really serve the Lord. We have to see the mercy of God in our life. The Apostle Paul understood understood the mercy of God, when he he wrote these verses, I can see him flipping the mental uh, scrapbook pages back to these events. When they heard these things, remember last week we talked about Stephen preaching this sermon. Well, we want to go toward the end of that sermon now and the results of it. When they heard these things, he preached the gospel to a bunch of folks who were basically Jewish folks who knew the Old Testament, but they were not really sincere believers in God, because when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. There was another group of folks who heard the gospel message in Acts chapter 2, and when they heard, they said, what should we do? And he said, repent. And they said, yes. These folks, no. They gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, look! Look! I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now that's the Apostle Paul before he got saved, before he was born again. What does it mean that they, that they laid down their clothes? It meant they took off their coat and they, they, they put it at his feet so he'd watch it so people wouldn't steal it so they could really throw those rocks. That's what they did when they worked. They had an inner garment and then they had this outer kind of a flowing robe thing and you couldn't do any work and you certainly couldn't stone somebody. And so there's our guy, the Apostle Paul. And he thinks back to this day. And he was the one standing there, and what we understand in a minute is he was the one giving authority to them. They were a lynch mob, and he was the one saying, go to it, guys. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then Stephen knelt down, and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge this, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Saul was the guy with the governmental authority out there saying, go to it, you can do it, and it's okay. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul... Here's what he went on to do after he oversaw the killing of Stephen. He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That was what his life was about before he came to Christ. He was such a zealot for the Jewish way. What did he think about himself during this time? Do you know the scripture tells us what he thought about himself? Here it is in Philippians 4. If anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I was circumcised the eighth day. That is the exact a uh, requirement of the law for a Jewish uh, male baby, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This is Paul's testimony about himself back in the day. And he said, I had it all going on. Nobody. Do you understand that? Concerning the righteousness in the law, blameless. Nobody could look at him and say, you weren't following this one or this one or this one. And the righteousness of the Pharisees went, I wouldn't say the, the true righteousness, but the pseudo-righteousness went beyond the law so that they not only had to keep the law to make that statement, but to keep the statements of the Pharisees. Apostle Paul would run around the country consenting to people being killed and thrown in prison for believing in Jesus. That's what his life was about. And so when he writes Romans 12, would you look at it again? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the the mercies of God. When he writes this, I can see him sort of looking into the mental mirror and saying, wow, I thought I had it all going on, and in truth, I was opposing God. Turn back a couple pages to Romans 5. Think about the Apostle Paul and the stuff he'd done, and then putting these words down on paper. I don't know if he was crying or jumping for joy, or both, but listen to what he wrote here in Romans 5, 6. And of course, he didn't write it, God wrote it through him. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For for scarcely or, or possibly for a righteous man, somebody would die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been made righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from God's wrath through Christ. For if... When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul writing that? Do you ever feel ashamed of your sin? Don't, don't answer, because I, I especially don't want to hear you say, no, I don't. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul writing that? God, do I really have to put that down? (laughs) I was such a bad man. I was so wicked. While I was your enemy, you died for me. You see, the Apostle Paul had clear vision. When he looked at God and he looked at himself, he said, Wow, isn't this the greatest thing? Wow. God is merciful. God is so merciful that this is what happened to Paul next, after those events we just read about. Then Saul, still breathing out threats and murder. You get the idea this is a guy you probably didn't want to hang around with? Still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he said, Would you give me permission so I can go to the synagogues of Damascus, and if I find anybody there who's part of this way, the Christian way, I am going to take them in chains to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone round about him from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Folks, I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about this. What did the apostle Paul deserve? What did he deserve? He deserved to be—he deserved to be struck by lightning, and Stephen raised from the dead, and all those people around there would have went whoa. But God is merciful. He did not give the Apostle Paul what he deserved. If you have the ability to look at somebody who has wronged you and feel anger, feel the desire for justice, do you realize that you were created in the image of God? And that God in heaven must look down at us Saul and go, Oh, God. Maybe would I like to... Now, I understand I'm thinking through God's character in my eyes. But we know God has justice, and someday justice will be served on those who have not believed, who died in their sin. And yet what we see over and over in the Bible and in our own lives is God holding back, holding back on judgment and being merciful, God is merciful in the timing of our salvation, and what I mean by that is, God is patient, and he, he, he we are on the one end of the rope, and He's on the other end, and He's pulling. He's come on, come on, no, 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 come on. He drugged Saul into the kingdom, kicking and screaming. Isn't that right? I mean, he's walking to Damascus intending to put some Christians in jail, and God goes, boom! Whoa. Saul was not seeking God. The Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. God is on the other end of that rope pulling And he was merciful to Paul. Look at Paul's testimony. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, the word blaspheme means to speak evil. I formerly spoke evil of Christ. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. He said I was stupid. I was a stupid unbeliever. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying. I'm worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come in to punish them. He came in to save them, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. Why? That in me, first, Christ Jesus might show all patience as a pattern To those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. God was patient with Paul. When someone wrongs you and you go looking for them, do you make it easy for them to make the relationship right? Do you understand what God did? Here's the Apostle Paul. He he consented to Stephen's death. He was the judge, jury, and and said, go ahead and stone him. (laughs) If that's not Jesus, Al, you better not be answering it. There you go. (laughs) Stephen was putting people to death. He was throwing them into jail. And yet when God went and talked to him, do you know what he did? He said, will you believe in me? He didn't drag him through a knot hole. He didn't say, get down on your knees and crawl for a couple of miles, and then I'll see maybe. God is merciful in salvation. He calls and he calls. I don't know if there are people here who have never accepted Christ as their Savior. But God is calling, he's calling, and you need to answer. He keeps calling, just like that cell phone keeps ringing. Ah, oh, God is merciful in the timing of our salvation. He's patient for us, but he's also patient. Well, let me, let, me, let me give you another example of God's patience in salvation. Some of you are old enough to remember a famous uh, group of martyrs. Uh, back in 1956, uh, the men in this picture flew to a remote place to evangelize some, to start the process of evangelizing some Indians in Ecuador. And the Indians took them in and killed them. And uh, their wives and other missionaries stayed on and won the whole bunch of them to the Lord. And years later, this fella, this fella who's one of the very ones who killed those missionaries, one of the group who actually murdered came to this country and traveled around with the son of Nate Saint the son of a guy who was killed and witnessed of God's mercy in saving them man that's mercy it's not what I'm preaching about today but that is the same mercy God wants us to have to others God is also merciful after salvation, or excuse me, in the method of salvation. What does God ask you to do to come to be a believer? God asks you to believe in Christ, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in Christ, God, through the Holy Spirit, comes in and scrubs you clean, takes all the sin out and puts the life of Christ within you. Now, what I want you to think about today is this. Do you realize how merciful God has been in bringing you to salvation? Or do you think God got quite a deal? Do you see how lost you were? Now, we'd say, well, I wasn't as bad as Paul. I wasn't out killing Christians. Well, that's good. But did you realize that that verse in Romans 5, that talks about us being enemies with God. If we're in sin, we're on the far other side of God's, God's uh, life. And he reaches down and saves us. What an incredible, incredible thing. Not only is he merciful in our salvation, he's merciful after salvation. He's merciful to answer prayers. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Us Christians today don't quite grasp the the privilege that we have going into the presence of God. In the Old Testament, remember they had the tabernacle and then the temple, and only one man once a year got to go into the place that represented the presence of God. He didn't actually go into the presence of God because he still had sin because Christ hadn't offered the perfect sacrifice. Now, now that we have been saved, we can go straight up into God's throne room and say, Heavenly Father, I have a need. Do you realize that's a privilege? God mercifully says, Come on, come on. He doesn't look down from heaven and say, You know, Dave, I'm glad you're praying this morning, but you know, last night there was this thing, and I'm not listening today. No. God mercifully hears my confession, and then he listens to my prayer request, and he works in my life. He is merciful. He's merciful. He's also merciful to heal. Now, I understand God doesn't heal every person of every illness they ever have, but uh, by and large, as we go through life, God continues to cause our bodies to heal, whether it be from a sliver or from some other thing. And yes, there will be an illness that will take our life. But along the way, God causes this. For indeed, the Apostle Paul talks about one of his fellow servants. He was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I wonder if sometimes our healing doesn't come because we think we deserve it and we're in God's face demanding it rather than saying, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need your help. God is merciful to us in salvation. God is merciful after salvation. Turn back to Romans chapter 12. And think now with me about how God wants us to respond to this mercy. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He spares us. He patiently draws us to himself. And how does he ask us to respond? Look at Romans 12.1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, if you understand the mercies of God, you will present your body a living sacrifice. Oh, come here. In my office there's two tennis racks. go get them real quick. Thanks. Uh, run, don't walk. <laughs> Visual aids. They're great when you remember them. When I was in Bible college... I came to understand this verse finally for the first time. And I came to understand what God wants of me. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about preaching my first sermon. Well, my first sermon was on these verses because this truth was so fresh. And and what I saw here was this. Look, God asks me to give him a living sacrifice, When I was in high school, I played tennis. I know you can't believe that now, but my dad came home one day from work with this tennis racket and talk about falling off the chair, going, "I can't believe he bought that for me uh, in today's dollars, I suppose it would have cost uh, you know a hundred dollars or more. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty much state-of-the-art for the day. (laughs) Top-of-the-line stuff. And I was thrilled with it, and I enjoyed playing tennis with it for many years. When I finally got my life right with the Lord, I thought about the tennis racket, and I thought, you know, I understand what I used to do before I got myself right with the Lord, before I grasped more of the mercies of God. I used to give my life to the Lord, mostly. I would say here's my life, God. Here, you can have it. You can play tennis with it. Well, if you've ever played tennis, you know that that spot right there in the middle, that's called the sweet spot. You can hit the ball over here, and I have many times, and you can hit it down here, and you can hit it up here, and you can hit it over there, but if you don't hit it in the middle, it doesn't really work. And what I came to discover about my life and these verses was this. I was saying, God, I'll give you all of my life except this part. And I came to understand that what God asked for me is to give him the whole thing. Not to hold. Oh, sorry, Julie. To give him the whole thing. The whole thing. Say so Here. My life is yours. Do you understand the words here? He says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. No doubt the Apostle Paul was thinking back about those Old Testament sacrifices, and when somebody would bring an animal to be sacrificed, they would hand it to the priest or give the the rope to the priest, and and it would go away, and, and they would go away, and it is sacrificed. It's no longer their own. Paul, by God's inspiration, takes that imagery and he says, now look, I want you to picture putting yourself on the altar that is giving yourself to God, but now you're not a dead sacrifice, you're a living sacrifice. There is a character about your life going on that is service to God, lived out with Him in control. God, you've done so much for me here. Here's my life. I will do what you ask of me day by day by day by day. The essence, the the, the nature, God wants us to respond to his mercy by whole life dedication. Whole life dedication. What is the essence of it? The essence of it is service to God. Think with these verses. Think with me on these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're well familiar with these verses, but what about this one? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works is really just a synonym for living the Christian life, which includes righteous action and ministry within the church and out in the community. Do you realize that God didn't save you so you won't go to hell? That was not the purpose. The purpose was that you might serve him. And if you are refusing to lay yourself on the altar, you're not accomplishing the purpose of your salvation. See, a lot of us say, well, you know, I'll, uh, I'll give God Sundays and Wednesdays, but the rest of the time, that's pretty much mine or maybe I'll give him Sunday, sort of. God says, look, lay your life on the altar. Stop stop with that. I've done so much for you. Look what the Apostle Paul said. Then last of all, he, he, when he's talking about the resurrection, he was seen by me, Jesus, he saw Jesus as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles. There's that clear vision of his life. He said, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not wasted But I labored more abundantly than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The word grace is closely tied to mercy. God giving us things that we don't deserve instead of the things that we do deserve. The Apostle Paul said, I looked and I said, look what God has done. I'm going to be busy for Him. When we put these concepts of dedication together, it goes like this. I die daily for me to live as Christ. I die daily. Why do you have to die daily? Because most of us keep picking this up and taking it back. Oh, 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 forgot. Oh, there's something new that I learned. Oh, there's an area that I've struggled with. And we have to keep going, I'm on the altar. I'm on the altar. I'm on the altar. I die daily God does not call us to live our best life now as though He wants to help us be what we have always wanted to be. The call of God is for us to lay our life at His feet and become what He wants to make of us. When we look at the church ministry, we say, well, I want to do this, or I want to do that. God says, you just lay your life on the altar and I will lead you where I desire. It's a great... uh, I don't know if it's a great movie, but there's a great story depicted in a movie that came out this week, and it's the Michael Oher story, O-H-E-R, and uh, this big fella in the middle there is Michael Oher, and that's his family. Michael Oher was one of eight, being raised by a crack-addicted mother, and, and at age 15, by God's providence, he landed in a Christian high school, I think in Memphis, and he had an IQ of 80. And, but he'd been practicing basketball a lot. So he was six foot five and 300-something and something pounds, and he could move good. <laughs> and the football team at that Christian school said, oh, we would love to have you on our football team. And they took him in. But what really happened was a family whose kids also went to the school, the O'Hur family, the mom looked at him and said, there is nobody taking care of this boy. They happened to see him walking around town a few times, and they went and said, come live with us. These people are rich. The dad or the, the family, the, whatever, the corporation owns 80 restaurants, and, and they lived for the Lord, and they said, we have to give back. And, and so they took him in, and they adopted him, and he took their name. And by the time he graduated from high school, he had a 2.5 GPA, and he knew Christ as his Savior, and he earned a full-ride scholarship to Mississippi State University. And this year, he's probably going to be declared the Rookie of the Year playing on the Baltimore Ravens football team at left tackle. The name of the movie is Blindside, because what they've discovered in football is the left tackle is the most important guy on the line. He protects the quarterback on his blind side and this guy is a wonderful gentle giant of a guy do you suppose he loves them they didn't want anything from him they had their own kids they didn't they they weren't craving children they didn't need his money that he'll make in the football league they just said we have to do something And they reached out and saved his life? Do you suppose that he will love them for all of his life? Has God done anything for you? Do you see it? Because if you see it, what God wants in return is not just your attendance and your praise and a song. He wants you to live for Him, a dedicated life. That includes ministry in the church, it includes godliness in the home, it includes outreach into the world. I hope you get your vision clear so you can see the mercy of God today and give Him the love in return that He asks. Worship team, come. We're going to sing an old, familiar song as we consider God's message today. I hope it will be your testimony